Welcome to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices and instead look for the processes and the questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Angela Brown, the Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for K-12 at Niche, and in this episode, we are chatting with my former colleague, Jennifer Webb. Hello. Jennifer. Yes. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Jennifer is the Director of Enrollment Management and Financial Aid at Flint Hill School in Oakton, Virginia. And in this role, Jennifer uses data to inform her work in areas such as developing strategic enrollment plans, drafting enrollment projections, developing funnel goals, strengthening brand messaging, informing program development, attrition intervention, and more. We'll be talking about some of that in this episode. Jennifer is inspired by the impact of education at all levels and the power of collaboration across campus departments, organizations, and industries. She contributes to the broader independent school segment by presenting, volunteering, and writing. Jennifer has also served on multiple committees and as a professional development co-chair for an international enrollment management association. She recently completed the Association of Independent Schools of Greater Washington's Leadership Initiative, Advancing Women's Impact in Independent Schools, where she gained from the wisdom of national independent school experts. Jennifer enjoys being the mom of two fabulous independent school students. And when she's not reading about education, enrollment management, or leadership, she is learning about behavioral economics, conscious living, positive psychology, mindfulness, or similar topics. Jennifer enjoys gardening, hiking, neighborhood bike rides, tinkering with the piano, and time with her friends and family. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Angela. It's so, so fun to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. It's long overdue. I promised you I was going to bug you for this purpose when I joined Niche, and it, it took me a little over a year, but here we are. And I'm so, so glad to be here, and I'm just <laughs> looking forward to chatting with you. I, I miss chatting with you, so this is going to be fun. Then we, We've got some good stuff on deck for today. We're going to be talking about data-driven enrollment management, which, I mean, Jennifer is definitely a great person to talk to about that topic. But before we get started, we're going to begin with our two standard issue questions that we ask every guest on the EI podcast. The first one is, what is something you tried that didn't work and what did you learn? That is such a great question. And, and I love this question. I love a growth mindset. Um, at Flynn Hill, we're about the, the growth mindset and, and I really appreciate it personally. And so I think one of the things that I've been experiencing lately, so it, it seems really relevant for this question, is making sure that you have the right systems. So especially as it's related to, to capturing data and making decisions based on data, I think it's really important that you have the systems in place to, to capture that. And I have recently been hitting my head up against a little bit of the, the vision that I have being really hard to execute with the current <laughs> systems that we're using. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of us has, have been there before. Oh, yeah. And it's so hard to make sacrifices on vision because of system limitations. And so I think one of the, and, and, and I saw this coming. So in terms of what did I, I learn, 
you know, one of the lessons is making sure that you have the systems in place for the vision you want to execute. And then in more life, a life lesson is whenever you're forcing something um, and you really keep trying to force it, uh, it's a good time to, to pause and ask some questions about why is it feeling so forceful. That's I, I, I think there are lots of people who can relate to what you just said. <laughs> you just did a technology survey where it became very clear, particularly in the independent and in private school sector, that people do not feel like they have everything they need to do all of the things that they want to do. Right. And so whoever can can come up with the one-stop solution for all of the things that admissions and really everybody under the advancement umbrella needs to do on a day-to-day basis, they're going to kill it in the market because so far that has not happened yet. And so we have lots of different systems being used by different departments and and still people don't quite have everything that they need. So The next question is, what practices do you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work? That's another great question. So our team is all about collaboration. So collaboration with each other. We do a lot of things together and collaboration with other departments. And so every summer we have several planning meetings, which is really our, our big collaboration time. And we just start with thinking in different ways about how we're we're going to brainstorm. And we start out really, 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 really big. And then we narrow down by prioritizing the areas. So as it relates to enrollment management, a lot of times we'll do some general brainstorming by funnel stage and audience. So is it, you know, leads that we're talking about? Is it prospects? Is it applications, completed applications, like what is the audience? So we'll do a lot of brainstorming by audience. When it comes to content, we do a lot of brainstorming by persona, as I've done with you, Angela, in the the past, Um, (laughs) and and also by stage. So who is our, you know, who is the the typical audience that would be reading the content that, that we are generating and who are we trying to attract and brainstorming through that lens? We have a communication workflows. So when we're brainstorming about that, we think about what voices are missing or what would we like the opportunity to go deeper into that we don't always get to do during initial conversations or some of our you know, very general uh, content. And then similarly for events, it's really about like what, what voices need to be there and what does the audience want to experience? So whenever we're brainstorming, we, we use these different lens uh, to, to look through it. Uh, a lot of times our brainstorming looks like having a bunch of poster board around the room. Everybody has post-its, write your idea down for each stage or person or, or whatever the area is on a poster board. And then we have a conversation where we start prioritizing them and grouping them together and then eventually turn them into uh, what we're going to, to execute that year or the next year. And then part of what I really like about brainstorming is bringing it all together into strategy. And so we've identified nine different strategic enrollment areas and then 15 areas that can can support those. 
And then a lot of that brainstorming that we do and a lot of the things we execute and try or the things we hear about at conferences, we take all of the ideas that anybody could ever do in enrollment management to have impact and we put it all into this larger strategic framework. So we're, we're, we have a library um, of ideas and essentially levers that we can pull to execute any, any area of the, the strategies. So clearly it's an area I'm excited about. It's, um, it's, it's a lot of fun to, to collaborate. Uh, and then we do that with the team and then we'll also do that with other departments or, or senior leadership to really finalize what we'll be prioritizing and, and executing in terms of a strategic enrollment management plan. I really like the idea of persona and funnel stage based brainstorming to really break it down. It's actually a very similar process to customer journey mapping, which is something that we do mm. at Niche, where you're really aligning your tactics with where people are in the process, which is really important, right? Yeah. You can't treat someone who's ready to apply in the same way that you would treat someone who's just submitting an inquiry form or window shopping on your website, right? Right. That's super important. And the prioritization piece, I, I don't think that we can emphasize that enough because as you know, we have lots of ideas in the school yes. world, right? <laughs> Especially when you're working with really creative people that you can't do them all. Right. right. You, you have to be able to do them all. So I think being able to, to have that really great process for coming up with the ideas, but you also need a process for determining, okay, what is it that is actually achievable yes. over the course of the next academic year? And that ties back to what you said earlier, too, about if something feels forced or you're banging your head up against a wall, that's typically a sign that you might need to take a break and, and reevaluate. Right, right. And to, to your point, Angela, it's so interesting because so much of the research that you look at is in terms of brainstorming by funnel is families are looking at different things when they're an inquiry in terms of what schools they're going to add to their list. And then if you look at what they're considering when they're admitted and deciding to enroll, those two lists are not the same. They, yeah. they're, they're different lists. Yeah. And so you really um, need to think about the, those different funnel stages because families are thinking about different things about a school at those those different stages, even the same family, let alone thinking about the, the different types of, of families. Absolutely. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. So we did not tee this up in your intro, but I do want to touch on the fact that you came over from higher ed admissions, and that's a that's a different world yes, <laughs> in K twelve. So I'm sure that influenced your perspective making that switch to a K twelve environment. Can you share some of the biggest differences that you've seen between higher education and K twelve schools in terms of the ways that they collect, analyze, and use enrollment data? Yeah, absolutely. I um, th this is one of my my favorite topics, really. Just it was such a fun and interesting experience coming from higher education to, to K to twelve, and I know a lot of other people have done that, and sometimes in, in the reverse order because there's certainly some similarities. Some of the differences that jump out is. In higher education institutions, you have uh, offices of institutional effectiveness and, and research, whole offices that do data collection and data reporting for the institution, whereas K-12s typically don't have that. They, they might have a person or two, um, but they don't have the 
entire offices. And I think in higher education, there's also a standard, like almost every higher education institution has certain types of reports that they produce both as an institution and then also in the enrollment team. And in, in, in K-12s, that it varies a lot more in terms of what schools, one, have the resources to do, and two, what they're, they're prioritizing in terms of reporting. And so in higher education, a lot of times the enrollment management department will use the institutional research and then figure out what else they need specifically related to enrollment and develop that within the enrollment office. And at independent schools, I've seen it's it's almost the opposite that happens. A lot of times it's the enrollment office that has a lot of that data yeah. and shares a lot of that data. And then other offices use that and then use that to start and, and pull what else they might need. So that's been really interesting. And I think I, I definitely think there's some benefits of that. I think that the, the K to 12s really have to back to, to prioritizing and thinking about what do we actually need? Uh, higher education, there's those offices put out all sorts of things, some that, you know, might be more actionable and, and useful than others. And in K to 12, with the less resources and not having that office, you really have to think about what data do we need and how we're going to collect it and how we're going to report it and what we're, we're going to use it for. Something else that is really different is that in higher education, uh, there isn't as much data that is used or needed for fit. And it's not that higher education is less selective at all but there are more people being considered. So in K to 12, you have, whether you're recruiting or you're deciding whether to admit or you're looking at, at the yield stage, in K to 12, you are considering not only the student and their fit for the institution, but you're also looking at the family members and the, the parents. Are they a fit? You're also looking, there might be consultants that are, are involved. And so when you look at the top of the funnel and you're trying to recruit and market and you're thinking about how to use data for that, you have, for one enrollment, you have multiple audiences to consider. The parents might think something is important that is different than the student. A lot of times it's a, it's a family decision. Both of them are making decisions. So you need to collect and consider more data all the way from recruitment to the, the end of the funnel just because there's more people. And then that's also true for the rubrics. When you're collecting data to make an admission decision in independent schools, you are not just thinking about the students fit for the program, but the whole family. So you developing a rubric that encompasses all of that uh, is one of the, the biggest differences between the higher ed and, and K to 12. So Flint Hill is really fortunate to have a solid team. I can attest to that personally. I know that I was really lucky being in the communication side to have a good sized team. So what are some of the roles that you believe an admissions team needs to make sure that a school is effectively collecting and using enrollment data? 
That's a that's a good question. And and you're right, Angela. I completely agree that um really fortunate to be at Flint Hill where we have such a, a great team and resources. And I, the answer might be a little bit obvious, but a data and systems person, I, I think it is such an important position. I've seen a lot of institutions that have different types of roles and they have a, a couple of different people cobbling together, you know, data and systems. And, and we all have to do what we have to do to, to make things work. And if that's the approach, I think it's really important to still have the data and systems piece written into those roles, even if the institution can't hire one person to focus on that, which of course, you know, I, I would think is ideal, then make sure it's written into the positions for the people that will do that and to be sure that it's getting done and to be sure that there are some standards in terms of the the development of the data and the the collection and that people have time there's people that have time and it's written into their job to sit and think about what do we need another position uh, is something that we have to thank you for angela <laughs> is the director of digital engagement which oh. i think flint hill is probably one of the only institutions at least that i know of in independent schools that has such a position and we can thank you for how you advocated for for that position but it has been incredibly impactful in this digital world so much of our our leads and our prospective families and so much of the success we've had at flint hill in terms of enrollment has come from really targeted and thoughtful and data-driven digital engagement and it is that digital engagement, thinking about the social media ads, the Google ads, Google analytics, the developing the, the content, developing the ads, following the data, seeing what's working, refining strategy. All of that is a whole lot for a communications director or, or team to take on. And also admissions typically wouldn't, wouldn't do that as well. It's, it's a position that is really a crossover between the, the two departments. And uh, you similar to the data and systems person, understandably, a lot of institutions may not be able to hire someone to do that. But similarly, to carve out in job description or job descriptions, time and space for people to be able to do that because it's, it's such an important part of enrollment now and, and moving forward. I'm glad to hear that that role is working out so well for the school. And to, to give our listeners some context, this was a role that we advocated for, for splitting the director of communications role into a role that was very focused on both sitting on the senior leadership team and, and, and managing communications and branding and things that sort of fall under the more pure communications and PR piece, the communication strategy, and then having a dedicated role for digital marketing, because as you've probably all experienced and just heard, that truly is a full-time job. And so to be able to do that work effectively and even just staying on top of the changes that are constantly coming through from a digital marketing standpoint, you know, right now we're working with our partners on transitioning to Google Analytics 4, and Facebook has changed its pages experience yet again. And so 
you know, there are constant algorithm changes. TikTok has expanded the length that its videos can run for. So there's having someone who can pay attention to all of that and constantly monitor campaign for performance, spending, all of that really does require a lot of work. And so that is something that in instead of trying to force one person to do it all, you know, with mixed results, if you really want it to work well and be effective, you either need to have someone who is dedicated to focusing on that or you need to outsource it, which I know a lot of schools do. You know, a, a lot of folks end up working with agencies to do this kind of work or they end up working with us, for example. And so depending on what your budget limitations might be, I would just really encourage schools to think about how to allocate resources to that function because it's critically important and it's really, really difficult for a single person to manage all of that. And, you know, all of, we haven't even talked about fundraising. You know, like that's, a, that's a big part, part of, of an institutional need that, that falls on the communications office's plate. So I, I appreciate you sharing that and just how impactful that has been for your team. Yeah, absolutely. It, it has been incredibly impactful. And I've, I've experienced doing both, uh, outsourcing it and then also having the, the director of digital engagement. But I, I can, I've, I've really seen the impact between not having either of those and having <laughs> one of those two enrollment and, and quality too. Part of that, it's not just about the numbers, but it's being really strategic in terms of getting the, the right people uh, to the institution, which increases efficiency uh, right. and, and all instead of trying to cast some really wide net. And then it's up to the enrollment office to kind of whittle that down, which itself takes a lot of resources. And so there's, if you're, you know, advocating for, for either getting a third party to do it, or if you're trying to hire someone on the team, there can be a big argument made for efficiency as well. Absolutely. So now we're going to switch gears and talk about how you're using all of this data. So what are some of the ways that you're using enrollment data or even some of the, the, the data coming through on the digital engagement side, provided that you can speak to that. And how has it changed since you started at Flint Hill? That's another, another good question. And I think I might answer it a little bit in, in the reverse and talk about what it was like when I first started and, and, and build up to, to what I'm doing and what we are doing now. And so when I first came over to, to K-12 and to, to Flint Hill, one of the very first things was just building a, a culture of consistent data collection and getting buy-in and partners in how necessary it is to, to build that culture and using that uh, analysis of data to inform strategic decision-making. And so, Whenever we were brainstorming on the team or, or with other other departments, one of the first questions we would ask is, what data should we consider in making this decision? So before we started to do anything, just asking what data should we consider? 
And sometimes we would have that data and sometimes, a lot of times, we wouldn't have that data. But that was a great starting point because we would say, okay, we know what data we would like to have to, to make this decision and what we would like to base this decision on and we don't have it. So let's start with collecting it. And so that was really starting to, to build the culture of it and starting to get people excited about the possibilities after after we had it and just putting the the systems and the processes in place to collect data uh, also back to prioritizing again another part of that is is prioritizing because people get really excited about collecting data which is great and it's so useful um, I had a, a former colleague in, in higher education, whenever I would ask her for data, uh, and she was in the institution, or she was actually in the, in the enrollment team, but she would ask, what is it going to be used for? Like, what actions are you going to take? Which I, I just love that question so much, especially when you're at a place like Flint Hill that's really curious and you're with a lot of curious, ambitious, excited colleagues to really think about the data we're collecting. And curiosity is great and it's wonderful to, to get that information to, to tell stories. But when you're starting to, to build the, the culture and really start to build having data, it's really important to ask, how am I going to use this data? How are we going to use this data? How is it actionable? So that you can prioritize first building what is actionable and then, you know, for, for fun and, and for interest and to keep that passion going, sure, also doing the collecting some data to, to settle curiosity. But I think it's really useful to make the distinction between the two. One of the ways that I use we use data at Flint Hill now, and it was one of the first things that we put into place, is by developing goals for each stage of the funnel. And that's something that's done pretty consistently in higher education. And I think it's a little bit less consistently done in K to 12, but I, I wouldn't know how to operate without it, honestly. And so what that means is you have like your bottom line enrollment goal that you're driving to. And I'm sure most institutions have that broken down by grade, but we use a historical three to five year, depending on what we we decide, historical conversion rates between each stage of the funnel to build the the goals for each stage of the funnel so that we know if we want to get to 200 new students, for an example, we know based on conversion rates that we need a certain number of admits which then requires a certain number of completed applications, which requires a certain number of applications, which requires a certain number of inquiries, which requires a certain number of leads. And building those goals has helped us in meeting enrollment goals by having early indicators of if we're behind in an area. So if we're behind in inquiries for second grade, behind goal, we know what to do. If we're behind in applications for for upper school, we go to that strategic framework I discussed earlier, and we say, okay, what levers can we pull to get more applications for upper school? And so that we can be really targeted and nimble because every year is different. And so what I'm describing sounds a little bit reactive. And of course, we start the year out with a big plan of how we're going to, <laughs> um, uh, how we're going to enroll, you know, whatever our enrollment goal is. But we all 
know that you, th sometimes th things change in a year. Things change in the landscape. Gosh, we certainly learned that the last couple of years. That things change, and sometimes you gotta you're gonna pull different levers than what you thought you were gonna pull. And if you have that those funnel goals, you know exactly where to focus. You know exactly you know what might be hindering you from getting to where you want to be, and then you 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 know what to 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 do about it. Another way, one of the biggest ways that we use in data is to increase recruitment efficiency and effectiveness. And that has positive gains for both the institution and the families that we work with. And what I mean by that is using the data that we have about fit and being really targeted at from the top of the funnel. So our content is really honing in on fit and attracting families who are a good fit. And so that helps us with efficiency, but that also helps us with reputation because it also helps families. We're not getting a lot of families that are coming to Flint Hill and then they're learning it's not a fit and they're going back and looking around. Yeah, that's and so important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then we're, we're doing that at every stage of the funnel. So we've been really intentional about what data we're collecting uh, and the conversations we're having. So at the prospects stage, we have a prospect checklist of like, what are some things that we can ask at this stage to help this family determine if Flint Hill is a good fit for them. Again, you know, certainly at the, the interview stage and then when we're, you know, having discussions about it in admission committee, of course, we have our rubrics, but we're also asking questions on the, the application and really thoughtful questions, asking people to reflect on our values and how they model that at home, asking people um, really kind of diving deep and getting as much data as we can from the family in a strategic way. And so that if there isn't a, a fit there, if we don't think we're a fit for them, we can help them right away. And so that's part of our, our compassion for, for the families because we, we, I think everybody in this industry wants people at the be best fit school. We want families to be at the school that is very best for them. And the more data we're collecting and the more that we're looking at that data and then looking at it in the, the big picture too, if we've, at Flint Hill, we've gotten more and more and more competitive. And so we've been needed to be more and more sophisticated about how we're determining fit and how we're collecting data. And so that we can help families keep expectations about fit into check throughout the, the process. So sometimes it's looking at that big picture of all the families coming in and also looking at that individual family and, and looking at those two with each other so that we can be sure that we're, we're guiding families to define their best fit school. And so um, another way that we really use data is to using data and systems to manage as much of the transactions as possible so that the team can focus on the relationship. So it's about building workflows to do a lot of the, certainly the transactional, like what's missing from your application work for us, some of the messaging for us too. And so that our team isn't, uh, knows what the family is getting. They don't have to call and say, 
oh, we're missing your recommendation forms. Sure, that might be a talking point during a conversation, but it's really about going deeper into the fit and, and more about the relationship than the transaction. And then, I mean, the, gosh, I could, I could probably talk for an hour about the ways that, that we're using data and, you know, we use it to increase equity uh, and increase accessibility. Uh, of course, we're doing it for, for for forecasting for three to, to five and beyond years of projections and, and supplying that to uh, the board to inform content and programming. So what kind of that intersection between what we offer and communicating that to the families, knowing what they would like us to offer. So of course, we're only communicating what we actually are offering, but sometimes we'll find that families, you know, there's some misconception in that they think we don't have something and it's, do we not have it? And it's something we should consider developing in terms of programming, or is it something we have and we're not communicating? Mm-hmm. And so surveys or um, collecting decline data, families decide not to come to Flint Hill, uh, collecting data on why they're not coming. When families do decide to come to Flint Hill, collecting data on that, doing that at every stage of the, the funnel when people exit the process or, or proceed through the process, understanding, collecting data and understanding what is driving them to not continue or to continue and using that to inform messaging or, or strategy. So, um, and then there's, you know, of course, several layers and, and areas that I could go into, but another big part is retention. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of enrollment offices are being more and more involved in retention. And so there is a lot of, you know, collecting data, you know, from current families, net promoter scores uh, is, is a common and, and useful data point for institutions to understand how engaged current families really are with their institution, understand their expectations and and understanding how the institution is delivering on those expectations. And one other thing that I'll mention as we're talking about this, and I forgot to mention it earlier when we were talking about the difference between higher education and independent schools is sample size and statistical significance. And so in higher education, you almost always, in all the programs and all the areas, you almost always have the numbers to be statistically significant when you're doing different types of analysis. When you're looking at behavior of second grade families, you you probably don't have the sample size for that to be statistically significant, which works out fine because as we're looking at things like eighth to ninth grade retention, instead of basing what should we do based on why eighth grade families have left or stayed Flint Hill, we're actually basing it on the families. So instead of the historical reasons why people have left, we also have families enrolled in independent schools for a lot longer than you do in higher education. And so actually looking at data related to the actual families you're trying to retain instead of all the history of families you've tried to retain. And Mm -hmm. so right now to build eighth grade retention planning, instead of looking at what last year's eighth grade did and the year before his eighth grade did, we're looking at what our seventh grade families are saying. Who Mm -hmm. are they? 
as a grade and what is important to them? Because what was important, especially as years and things change and the landscape changes, what was important to last year's eighth grade might be completely different than what's important to this year's eighth grade. And so we're looking at the seventh grade parent satisfaction surveys and saying, what is important to this group and are we delivering or are we communicating that we're delivering? Because some a lot of times we're delivering, but it's in the communication yeah. that, that that needs to happen. And so so I know that was a very long answer, but those are those are some of the ways that we're we're currently using data. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in what you just said. So I, I'm, I'm all for long answers when there's a lot of really good actionable information. I mean, I, I think there's a few things that you touched on that are very, very helpful, particularly the, the marriage between forecasting data and sort of back historical data and, and how you can use that to inform strategy and decision making, but also balancing that with things that might be happening in real time. Because I, I, I find myself having conversations with people about like, how, how far ahead should you do an enrollment marketing plan? Or how far ahead should you do a marketing and communications plan? And, and I, my response to that is always, for one, I think the two should be interrelated. In a perfect world, the communications plan should be driven by institutional priorities and support to the admissions and fundraising arms of an institution, because typically those are the two teams that marketing and communications supports the most, right? And so there should be alignment in, in how those plans are formulated. But also the last two years have taught us that really, really long range planning sounds great, but probably isn't that helpful. <laughs> So you need to have that that space to react to what's happening around you. And so using historical data is helpful. Having a plan going into the start of an academic year is also helpful, but constantly revisiting that plan is really important. Yes. We're past the point where three to five year plans actually work. Forecasting is one thing, but planning is something different. So mm -hmm to know the difference between the two. And there's a lot of work that you're doing to really ensure fit. And I do want to stick on that for a second because I think that that's something that is going to become even more important for independent schools over time, particularly as we think about some of the culture wars that are happening in education at this point in time, you know, we've seen that play out in public school districts in the last year pretty significantly, but independent schools are just now starting to get hit with some of these questions and issues from prospective families. And so it's really important to, it's probably more important than it's ever been to communicate very clearly about what your institutional identity is, what you prioritize, what your values are. So the fact that you have woven all of that into your admissions process so there are no surprises once a family has enrolled, I think is very important. And there are a lot of lessons there for other schools. Yeah, absolutely. It's been every year we're, we're taking a look at, you know, similar to the brainstorming, we are brainstorming every stage of the funnel. How could we hone in even more 
unfit? Uh, every single year we ask that question, um, partially because we want to make sure that we're enrolling families that, that are, are gonna thrive and that, that we're the place for them. And as I mentioned, as we get more competitive, we also have to get more sophisticated uh, with that as, as well. And just, you really want, want families in, in the right place. So one more question before we wrap up, because you talked a lot about collaboration. And so can you talk about how you share all of this fabulous data with other departments and how you can help provide context around what it means? Yes, yes. And so, um, so yeah, co collaboration, it's, it's so fun to, to pull a couple of different departments together, people from departments and, and look at data and think about how each department uses it. Certainly collaboration between the marketing and communications department and the enrollment department is so important. Uh, I giggled a little bit earlier when you were talking about planning because I was thinking, Angela, when you and I in 2019 <laughs> developed a enrollment and marketing plan together and collaborated on that. Little did we know, March 20, it was like a three, five year plan. Oh, a little bit man. Of, and little <laughs> did we know, like nine months later, <laughs> a lot of it was still relevant and, and got done. Um, but uh, we got from point A to point B a little bit different <laughs> than, than we had expected. So, you know, sharing data between marketing communications and enrollment management is essential. As I mentioned earlier, when you're looking at different stages of the funnel, if it's inquiries or apps, I mean, one of the first people I go to is marketing and communications and say, oh, we're down in this area inquiries. Let's think about some ideas for, for content. And so um, similarly, they'll come and say, we've been running this ad, but this ad, you know, doesn't seem to be working. Let's brainstorm. And so sharing regular communication and collaboration between uh, marketing and communications and the enrollment team is just essential. And by regularly, I mean at least once a week, touching base on, on all of these things is really essential to enrollment success. Also, depending on who, if you have parent satisfaction surveys or current family surveys of, of any type, that's another opportunity for a lot of collaboration. I know at different institutions, there's a different people that are involved in and review these, but how information from that is shared and who comes around the table to think about that information is really impactful to retention, of course. And so right now it's uh, at, at Flint Hill, it is the assistant head for advancement, the director of communications and myself that are looking at the retention data, but then we're gonna be sharing and having conversations with the division leaders, the department leaders, uh, as it relates to their office. And again, we find ourselves asking that question a lot. If there seems to be some sort of deficiency, is it because we're not communicating it well or because it's not happening? And then do we want it to happen, right? Is that who we are, right? And so having people around the table to ask these questions and look at this data is, is really important. 
We also use data in, in enrollment to work collecting data on our audience that's going to be at events and sharing that with every department or representative or speaker that's going to be at an event. So are they coming from private schools? Are they coming from public schools? Are they looking for this year? Are they looking for next year? We ask on our event registration, what do you hope to gain by attending this event? So that we can make sure that we're delivering on what they are hoping to, to gain. So I share, we share that information with everybody that's going to uh, be at an event. We also, um, for our prospect pool, we share data points of our prospect pool with departments as relevant. And so we have systems in place where um, when we hear that a family is interested in athletics to get the coaches involved and share information from the families about you know, their interest in athletics, similar for, for fine arts and for, for Latin and um, for all of the, the different areas. So sharing data, to coordinate and collaborate on recruitment um, is, is also very useful. We have uh, something called the Hello Husky team, which are like parent ambassadors. And so they help us engage prospective families, admitted families, depending on where we are in the year with, um, with other current parents. And so sharing information about that audience and so that they can build those connections. Uh, you probably see a theme when I'm talking today is we use data to build relationships. Uh, some people think it's relationships or data, and they're, but it's really, it's really the combination of the two. We're using the data to figure out how to build the, the, the connections and, and how to, to build the relationships. And so, and then there's some other, you know, kind of typical ways I think that we uh, collaborate on data, of course, you know, sharing with the, um, board of trustees, you know, projections, you know, college counseling, you know, has certain types of data that they need to, to report out on as an office. So we'll, we'll share that with them. We also use data, collaborate on data for class composition. So when we get to the point where we're getting ready to release admission decisions and we have a certain number of decisions we can release and we have an admissible pool uh, really looking at data from the current class and data from the admissible prospects to think about very intentional class composition. And that usually involves the, the divisions, um, maybe the, the learning center and some other departments across campus to be sure that, that we're balancing classes appropriately. But yeah, I think collaboration across departments is fun. And it's so much easier than it was in higher ed because it's smaller. <laughs> so, so that's fun too. I have heard that. I, I've definitely heard that there's a little bit less complexity to, to sharing data and collaboration in a, in a K-12 environment. So for, for others who have made the switch, I'm sure that they're they are agreeing with, with what you just said. So there's so much that you're doing at Flint Hill and so many great takeaways. Where can people find you online if they want to get in touch or learn more about the work that you're doing? Sure. So I um, LinkedIn, I have a LinkedIn profile. So if you search for Jennifer Webb or Jennifer L. Webb and, and Flint Hill, um, I'll, I'll come up. So you can find me on there. I'm always excited to, um, to have new friends. You can also, uh, anyone can feel free to email me directly at jweb. So that's J-W-E-B-B at flinthill.org. Um, and I'm always glad to have conversations with, with other colleagues in the field because uh, inevitably, 
every time I do, uh, I learn something. So I, I really appreciate it when people reach out. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing so many great tips with our listeners. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Angela. Thanks for having me.